Well, hey, y'all. Y'all seem more awake and alert tonight. I think that's owing to an amazing meal and uh, our brothers and sisters up here. Um, so encouraging being led in worship by you guys. I'm going to jump right in tonight. This is, I think this is my favorite passage we're talking about this week. And so um, I'm super excited about it. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, so I want to jump right in. Um, last night we talked about Jeremiah 29 and what it looks like and what it means uh, to be in the world. And tonight we're going to kind of continue that thought, but also uh, balance it with what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world. What does it mean to be a Christian in exile who still is distinct, is different, doesn't blend in with the world in a way that would be harmful to the world and harmful to us. And so this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's from the book we're looking at this week. So um, if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and 2. There's two passages out of there that we're going to dance between tonight. I'll read it for you. Peter says, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Probably means there is when Jesus returns. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear or reverence throughout your t the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. God didn't buy you with money. He bought you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We push on to uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter says, you, church, you, Gentile Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There was a time once when you, look at me, you were not a people, but now you are a people. There was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers or insult you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray one more time to ask God's help for what we're about to do. Father, singing and worshiping you tonight, I am so thankful that not only do you love us, but you told us you love us. And you spared us from a lifetime of wondering where we stand with you. And you spared us from a lifetime of he loves me, he loves me not, emotions and circumstances and trying to read the tea leaves of whether you're for us or against us. We're thankful for the cross of Jesus that answers that question forever. We're thankful for the spirit of Jesus who preaches that answer to our hearts. We pray he would come. You please come tonight, Holy Spirit, and get past all of the distractions, get past the tiredness, get past the I've heard this before things in our hearts. 
and preach to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last November, it was the week of election, of the election. Another unbelievable event happened that no one had expected. The Chicago Cubs broke a 107-year curse. The last time the Chicago Cubs won a World Series was 1908, horse and buggy era. Telegraphs were how you communicated with people. It had been 107 years since they had won a World Series. Now, the joke among Chicago Cubs fans is famous. They would say every single year for 107 years, maybe next after a losing season, they would say, maybe next year we'll win. Maybe next year. That was the joke. And that is what they've been saying for 107 years until last November, this past November, the Chicago Cubs not only uh, had a winning season, not only made it to the World Series, but they made it to Game 7 of the World Series. If you're not a baseball fan, Game 7 is the game. It's the end. It's the pinnacle. Whoever wins that game wins it all. And uh, on top of that, the Chicago Cubs, they were not in friendly territory. They were in Cleveland, a horrible, horrible place of exile, a terrible city. Patrick. It's for you, Patrick. <laughs> they were exiles in a foreign land, no home field advantage, a terrible place to be. It's, I don't know how they survived it, but the Cubs had been leading game seven for eight innings. There's nine innings in a baseball game. Again, I'll try to help you out if you're not a baseball person. If you're not a baseball person, you'll love this story, though. Um, they had been winning for eight straight innings in this game. Uh, except for the bottom of the eighth inning when Cleveland was up again. Right before the last inning, Cleveland scores, three, Cleveland drives in three runs, and they tie the game. And they undo all of the work that the Cubs had been relentlessly doing and putting on the scoreboard of the first eight innings, just like that. And you saw a team that had beaten all of the odds, had made it farther than any other Cubs team in 107 years. You saw them crumbling apart and they knew it and this is what made the game so riveting to watch you could see it on their faces the players are all thinking oh no it's happening again we're choking when it matters most like we did for the 107 previous seasons they were demoralized the, the Indians had completely turned the momentum of the game if you're an athlete you know anything about sports momentum is everything momentum wins ball games the Cleveland Indians go into the ninth inning, tying the game with all of the momentum. The Cubs are demoralized. They're kind of, they're in their heads now. They're clearly going to lose this game. Except something crazy happened. I went to use the restroom in between innings, and when I came back, uh, the field is covered in a giant blue tarp. What had happened is, in between the eighth and ninth inning, a, a huge storm had come over uh, the city of Cleveland, and they had called a rain delay. They couldn't play in the lightning, so they called a rain delay. Both teams go to the locker room, and it ends up being about a 30-minute uh, rain delay. Storm passes. Both teams come back out, and uh, the Cubs are up to bat in the top of the ninth <coughs> inning. Everything is on this inning. Everything is on the next few at-bats. And again, remember, they went into the, to the dugout to the locker room earlier. The, the Indians were charging. They were going to kill them. They were going to win the game. Cubs come back out, they're up to bat, and miraculously, it's a whole different team that comes back out. Every pitch this, this Cleveland Indian pitcher is throwing across the mound, they're making contact with it. They put a couple of guys on base, they eventually knock one guy in, so the Cubs are back ahead one run going into the bottom of the ninth inning when the Cleveland Indians are up at the last at bat, home field advantage, 
The crowd is going nuts. You can't hear yourself talk or think in the stadium. It's so loud. It's the, it's the bottom uh, of the ninth. First Cleveland batter comes up. He pop flies. They catch it. He's out. Two more outs to go for the Cubs. Um, and, they, and they win the game. They're up by one. The next Cleveland batter is up. He hits like a line drive somewhere near first base. It's an easy out. Last Indians batter is up. He, he gets a few pitches. The place is on eggshells. He finally, he hits the ball. It's a line drive, uh, a grounder right in the infield. They field the ball at second, throw it to first. He's out. And the Cubs hear the words they hadn't heard for 107 years. Cubs win. They're the world champions. Now, that in and of itself, if you go back in YouTube and just watch the last, like, 30 minutes of the game, that alone is a nail-biter and will keep you on the edge of your seat. But what was, what was even more interesting to everybody, and all the, all the TV interviews that happened after the game when they're, like, pouring champagne on them and putting the new hats on, they weren't asking them about how does it feel to break the curse. Everybody was asking about what happened in the locker room. What, how did this turnaround happen? Like, how did y'all go into the locker room, a team that was gonna, was gonna choke just like you always do, and you came back out charging, winning, and, and wrapping up the game? What happened in the locker room? Now, every player that, um, that was interviewed gave a little piece of the story. They all said, Jason Hayward, that's what happened in the locker room. And I didn't follow the Cubs. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but um, you're piecing together this story the more interviews they do in real time, and you're like, so I'm like Googling, who's Jason Hayward? He's one of the oldest players on the Chicago Cubs. He's an outfielder. He's been on the team the longest and, um, of any of the players. And what had happened is they go to the locker room during this rain delay when they're about to die and lose it all. And Jason Hayward calls a team meeting. And he gets all these guys together just with defeat. already. They've already thrown in the towel. They're already grieving the loss of another World Series. And Jason Hayward uh, gets the guys around and he asks them this question. Who was that team playing in the last inning? Because I don't know those guys, and I don't know that team. Those aren't the men that I've been playing with and winning with all season long. And he said, look at your jersey. What does it say on it? And all these guys look down at their jersey, or they don't because they know what he's saying. He says, it says the Chicago Cubs. He said, you're a Cub. Cubs win. We're the winningest team in baseball this season. We fight. We fight till the end. We don't give up. We push on. We're the ones who break the curse. So he said, you are a cub. Get out there and act like it. Pretty soon after that, they end up back on the field. And they did exactly what Jason Hayward said. They played like cubs. And they wrapped up the game in half an inning. And they won. Now here's the thing, here's the point of this story and how it affects the passage from tonight. Action flows directly out of identity. Action or behavior flows directly out of identity. Who you think you are. That word think is important. They were cubs, but they had forgotten. They thought they were losers. Action and behavior flows directly out of who you think you are. All Jason Hayward had to do was remind those guys who they already were, right? He didn't say, team meeting, hey, this is how you read a pitch. Stop swinging at the outside balls. 
He didn't say, hey, fielding coach, come here and teach these guys how to get a grounder again. He didn't do any of that. It wasn't skills. It wasn't fundamentals. It was identity. Every great locker room pep talk is an identity speech, right? Not a skills speech. Not a score more points. Keep them from... Thanks for the great tip. That's helpful. We'll go out there and score more points now. It's an identity speech. With whatever the mascot is. You're a raider. You're a wolverine. The Delta State uh, College in Mississippi, their mascot is the fighting okra. You're okra! Go out there and play like okra. I don't know how you do that. but All Jason Hayward had to do is say, you're Cubs, because he knows intuitively what every coach knows, what you and I know intuitively, that action flows directly out of identity. And these Cubs needed Jason Hayward to remind them of their identity because they had forgotten it for this reason. There is always this pull between our old identity and our new identity. 107 years of failure is a pretty entrenched identity. 107 years of shame and mockery from even your hometown fans is a hard thing to shake. In real time on that green baseball field, those men, grown men, were wrestling between these two identities, and they had forgotten who they were. They had reverted back to the old identity, which was the worst team in baseball, the team that can never finish the deal, the team that always chokes when they need it most. And so here is the Apostle Peter telling those Christians and these Christians, you are living as an elect exile in a hostile God-denying world which is to say we don't have home field advantage here, which is to say that we, we do this Christian life away in a hostile stadium, in a crowd that's not cheering for us, and all that comes with that. And just like those Cubs, the Gentile believers Peter is writing to, and you, all of you, old, young, whatever, all of you, myself included, have years and years and years a failure under your belt, right? We have horrible track records. We're dripping in shame. If people knew what we have done, what we think, who we really are, we would feel like those shubs embarrassed to walk in public out on the field. We are people like them who are always living in fear. Am I one step away from reverting back to everything I used to be? We have this new identity in Christ, we'll talk about in a few minutes, but we also have a lifetime of habits and memories that are really hard to shake. And so, yeah, the gospel has changed us. It says that we're new, but don't you feel old and crusty and stale sometimes? The gospel says we are alive, not dead, but don't you feel dead sometimes? The gospel says you are free, not captive, but don't you feel enslaved sometimes? The gospel says you are courageous because you're united to Christ, but don't you feel timid, doubtful, unusable in the kingdom of God, even though the gospel says the opposite. And so just like those cubs, we, every day, are pulled between this new identity and this old identity. And it's powerful. This tension is powerful. And this leads to uh, a condition. I've heard Paul Tripp call it identity amnesia. It's when you forget who you are. And again, remember what we've already said. If action flows out of who you think you are, if, if action flows out of identity, if you forget your identity, you don't know how to live. It's really confusing to know 
Okay, so how am I supposed to live as a Christian if you don't know what it means that your identity is Christian, right? You forget who you are. You don't know how to live anymore. You don't know what to do. And so we all need a daily locker room pep talk to cure this identity amnesia. We have to be pulled aside in our despair and our forgetfulness and our failure. And someone's got to grab us by the shoulders and shake us and say, who is that guy living today? Because I don't know him. You go up to your friend and say, who's this anxious girl been today? Because I don't know her. I know a daughter who has a father who counts the hairs on her head. I know a God who said, cast your troubles on me. He's not the friend that avoids your troubles and doesn't call you because he might get messy. He invites you. So we need these little locker room pep time, pep talks to pull us into our new identities and to remind us of these things. And it happens. God is so kind through moments like this, through worship, through your quiet time, which perhaps we should rename reality check time or identity check time. Because that's more appropriately what we should be doing in that moment. That's what Peter is so kind to do for these Christians and for you tonight. He sits down with us and he reminds us who we are. And he has every expectation, just like Jason Howard Hayward. Peter doesn't get in necessarily into the fundamentals. All right, guys, Christians in Pontius and Bithynia and Galatia, let's go over it again. Here's how you repent. Uh, here's, here's the ten steps to what faith, living by faith looks like. All he does is says, you're Christians. You're holy. And he tells them what that means. And he assumes and expects that actions will follow because he knows action comes out of identity. So really quickly, what does it look like for you to respond to what we've talked about just so far? Just a little bit we've covered so far. What does it look like for you to react to it, to respond? Well, think back to those uh, players in the, dug in, the, in the locker room, the Chicago Cubs players. They had a choice. They could listen to the inner dialogue of, here it, ha here it goes again. We are failures. We are losers. We are chokers. Or they could argue with that, push it back, put it in its place, and listen to another voice. That's at least one action item that comes out of this passage. Are you willing to violently argue with the inner dialogue that is atheistic, that is unbelieving, that persuades you you're not who you actually are. That's what taking action looks like, and it will manifest itself in actual physical actions. Would you say that those players listened to Jason Hayward and believed him if they just stayed in the locker room and said, man, Jason, that's, that's really encouraging. I believe you, but hey, the game is over, man. Just accept it. And they, they forfeited and they went home. Is that faith? No, that is unbelief. Faith is saying, he's right, everybody. He's right. We're going to get back on that field. We're going to go play like Cubs. That is another action item that comes out of this passage. Is where does this passage get your feet moving again? Back onto the field. Taking the risk. Moving out there. Executing and acting on who you know yourself to be because God has told you. Look, there's no shock that... This is exactly what Peter is telling those Christians and us. This is why he starts his passage and he peppers, peppers this letter with things like, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Remember who you are now as a Christian. Right? He says it, not me. He's saying, Get your, he's shaking you by the shoulders. Do you, do you see what he's doing? That's like pretty aggressive language. 
hey, wake up. Like, don't be drunk in your mind to get sober up. You've got to know who you are. If you don't, you see it on the page just like me. He says, this is what will happen. Here are the symptoms of identity amnesia. We slide back in to our former ignorance, he says. He calls it in another place, our futile ways, which means our cul-de-sacs. Do you have those where you live? Cul-de-sac's a little circle of asphalt that just goes in circles. You never get anywhere, but you get exhausted driving around it. Peter says, the ways, the traditions, the habits of the world that all of us have been the recipients of from our family trees, from our environments, our cultures. He says, when you forget who you are, guess where you go? Back to all of those cul-de-sac ways that get you nowhere but tired and lost. And he says, these are the passions of our flesh which wage war against us. Real quick, why do we slip back into those things? Why not just like spiritual apathy or coasting, whatever? Why does he pinpoint those particular things? Well, he's speaking to Gentile Christians who, let's do a quick case study. Let's say a guy, a guy in one of these cities was 40 years old when he first heard the gospel of Jesus. He is converted. He comes to faith in Christ. But guess what? So maybe he's been a Christian for one year. How many years has he lived as a pagan? How many, how many years of habits does he have? How many years of memories does he have? Which life feels familiar and cozy and comfortable? Which feels new and awkward and clumsy like the first time you ride a bike? Why does he say these things? Because they're the easiest thing in the world to slide back into. Because they're so familiar and so comfortable, right? Guys and ladies, the reason why so many of us, the reason why so many of you so easily slide back into porn is because it's so familiar to you. It's so easy. There's a sense of comfort in it because you know that world. What, the world you don't know yet and don't have much experience in, and all of us are growing experience here, is ruthless fighting against lust. That's the unfamiliar, weird, clumsy, awkward world. Which have I spent more time in? Which have I practiced in more? Which do I have more habits shaped by? This is why the Israelites get into the wilderness. Guess where they want to go? Right back into slavery in Egypt. Why? Because they got three meals a day in Egypt. It was familiar. They knew that world. They didn't know the unknown of tomorrow with God. They didn't know the life of faith. They wanted the life of sight. That's why Peter points out these particular things that we slide back into when you forget who you are. And so, just to review, there's a, there's a very high cost to forgetting who you are to yourself, but also to the world. The world bleeds when we forget who we are. Here's a couple of examples, and then we'll kind of pivot to the second part of this this passage. When we forget, for example, that we are a neighbor, Good Samaritan, Old Testament, God says to his people, you are a neighbor. Lawyer, the lawyers and the Levite and the priests say to Jesus, well, I can't want to talk with my neighbor. And Jesus says, hey, tables are turned. You're the neighbor. Don't ask who your neighbor is. You are a neighbor to the world. When you forget that you are a neighbor to the world, remember, actions follow identity. You forget your identity of that. What actions fall out? We ignore it. We're indifferent to the world. We tune it out. We retreat from it like we talked about last night. When we forget that we're priests, the world pays a high cost, right? Who is interceding for them? Who is representing Jesus and his mercy as an ambassador? When we forget that we're new creatures in Christ, there's a high cost because we act in accordance with whatever identity we're living out of. And so if you think, if you feel defeated, 
If you feel that you're a slave to sin, it's the easiest thing in the world to give in to that temptation. The logic goes like this. Why resist? Why fight? I know I'm just going to give in later. Let's just save myself seven hours of fighting and just give in now. Let's let the, the battle be over. See how your actions flow out of whatever identity you think. If you think you're dead in sin, that's how you react. If you know you're alive in the spirit of Jesus Christ, who hates that sin more than you, you start to do different things. All right. So we understand, hopefully you're tracking with me. I'm seeing some heads nod. We understand a little bit this, this idea that behavior follows out of identity, right? Whoever you think you are determines how you act in any given moment. But we still have some important questions uh, to ask, and Peter goes on to answer them later on in the passage. Two of them that I can pick out are this. Well, then, what does this passage say about who you are? Right? I mean, that's kind of an important question at this point in the message, right? Shouldn't we talk about who we are? And then the other one is, what impact will you remembering who you are have on the world? What difference will it make for you to remember who you are, for you to pursue a cure for identity amnesia? Well, this passage, uh, if you look down at your page or whatever you're looking at right now, it is a goldmine of identities for the Christian. Remember two talks ago, Sunday morning, we talked about Christians aren't one-dimensional little creatures. We are mul- it's like the, the panes of glass, 20 panes of glass, each with their own image, laminated, pressed together, and you look through it, and it's got depth and definition and color and, and movement and complexity. That's what a Christian is. You don't have one identity. You have about, I don't know, let's toss out a number. A hundred? Let me show you a few just in this passage that show you how complicated and brilliantly beautiful a Christian is. He says that we are, you are an obedient child of a fair and loving father. He says that you are the holy ones. You are the holy ones of the world, set apart for a special, specific purpose. He says that you are the ransomed ones. You are the ones that God the Son bled for. You are the ones washed in nothing less than his cleansing blood. You are the chosen ones, he says in this passage. You are, the, you are royalty, he says in this passage. You are priests. You are God's personal possession, and he will not share you with anyone. He calls us another identity, another layer, another pane of glass in this complex image of who we are as Christians. You're sojourners, which means you're pilgrims, which means you play on the away field not in your home stadium. You're in exile. You add all this up and you look at the whole two-foot-deep block of glass at one time and the title above it is Christian. You are a Christian. Is this how you think about yourself? Is that how you think about you? Is that the internal dialogue? Is this burned into your neuron pathways? Is this burned into your soul? Is it burned into your heart? If you're like me, a little bit, sometimes, but I forget it. I get amnesia too. And here's, here's, here's something we're going to have to learn how to do. Uh, your emotions are beautiful and great, but they didn't get out of Eden unbroken either. Nothing did but God. And so you're going to have to learn to be a cross-examiner of your emotions and argue with them, and give them orders instead of listening to them, and tell them where to go. 
if you are going to hold tight to your identity in Christ. Dave Ramsey says you can watch where your money went or you can tell your money to go, where to go. You can watch where your faith went or you can tell your faith where to go. You can watch where your emotions go or you can tell them where to go. As you get older, you'll realize this is a lot more complicated than it sounds. But the principle remains. Because of the theme this week, we need to kind of focus especially on a few of these little gold nuggets in this gold mine. The theme is exiles. The theme is holiness and exile. And so let me zoom into that at the expense of talking about some of the others. God says we're holy. We're a priesthood. We're his people. We're exiled in the world. So real quick, what does it mean that we are holy? I, had a, I was telling some folks at lunch today, I had a, a professor in seminary who told us, and I'm so thankful he did. He told us, students, when you are talking about holiness, if people's mouths aren't watering, if they're not on the edge of their seat, if they don't want you to shut up talking so they can go pursue holiness, you have failed to properly describe holiness. That's a tall order. I shouldn't have said that before I try to describe holiness to you. <laughs> but I have a quick question for you. Do, you, do you. do you hear it as an exciting, refreshing relief? Or do you hear it as a bland, dull, boring term or idea? Oh, holiness. Let's, look, come on, let's get to the good stuff. Let's come at this from two different angles. Really quick, I'll just throw out a few things. Talk to your counselors tonight. Talk to your pastors uh, for the longer fleshed out definition. But I'm going to try to take a poetic stab at this. Holiness is being blazingly, ferociously pure and pristine. Holiness means you're not like the rest. Holiness means you are mesmerizingly different. People can't turn their faces away from you. You're that beautiful. You know what the angels are saying to God right now? What we sang earlier. Holy, holy, holy. For all of eternity. Forward. We will be joining in with them. Holiness also means this. Peter comes at it two different ways. He says, you are holy, so be holy. Okay? He says, you already are holy. Uh, when Jeremy was uh, doing the grace talk today, there's an aspect of sanctification that's definitive. You've already been sanctified in one sense, which means plucked out of the masses, put aside as special. And there's a progressive side. Every single day, every single minute, the spirit of Jesus is nudging you along towards that. But holiness means set apart for a specific purpose, saved for something. It's another day, another talk. We talk a lot about what we've been saved from. How much do we talk about what you have been saved for? Navy SEALs are holied by the Navy, which means they are plucked out of the masses for a very specific purpose purpose. They are holy in the Navy, which means they are pristinely different than all the rest because they have a, have a different purpose. And if you're a Christian, you are holy before God. You are holy in the world because you have been pulled out for a special purpose to represent him. I grew up Methodist, but I've, I've been in the this denomination of the PCA uh, since 2004 when God changed my heart. That was the church that I, my friends were going to, so I went, and lo and behold, I'm a pastor in the PCA now. And I, I've noticed this, um, and I say this in love, but I've, 
I've noticed that in, in our circles, sometimes we lean more towards, when we talk about holiness, we say, we use phrases like this, you have to be holy. You have to be holy. Uh, and I don't think that fits as well with the ethos, the culture of the gospel. The culture and the ethos of the gospel is you are holy and you get to be holy. Think about that. Talk about that in your good sign. What's the difference in you have to be holy and you get to be holy? You are the people in the world who get to do this. You get to pursue this. You get to be free from sin, so fight sin. It's not your master anymore. You get to repent instead of being dead in your sin and unable to repent. You get to live by faith in Christ instead of being blind to him and indifferent towards him. You get to ask forgiveness from somebody instead of being so enslaved by your pride that you can't ask for forgiveness. You get to confess your sin instead of hiding in a very claustrophobic, tiny little closet that isolates you. This is how scripture talks about holiness. It's not burdensome. It's sweet to the mouth. It's beautiful. It's desirable. It's treasure. That's how Peter talks about it, I think. Here's a little metaphor I hope is helpful to you. Think about it this way, about your old identity, your new identity, and what holiness means. I think the way the Bible talks about our identities is you used to be a caterpillar, now you're a butterfly, you get to fly. Legalism is yelling at a caterpillar, fly, fly, fly. Caterpillar can't do it. There's continuity in those two creatures. Butterfly is the same exact creature as the caterpillar, but it has a new nature. Metamorphosis. You are butterflies. When someone tells you you have to be holy, here in your mind, but I get to be. God's given me wings, and so when he says fly, now I get to do it. And he's not, he's not telling me to fly as some audition of whether I get in the family or not. He's saying, you're in the family, learn to fly. Of course you're going to fall. Of course you're going to revert back to old ways. But how silly is it for a butterfly to live life as a caterpillar, earthbound, eating leaves, instead of using its wings to fly? You're a butterfly. You get to fly. The sky is the limit. There's an adventure, some quality to holiness. So only butterflies can fly, and flying for the butterfly is his destiny. It's what he was made for. And you are a Christian, and only Christians can be holy, which means your destiny and your privilege is holiness. I want to finish with this last chunk in the passage because it is interesting where Peter takes this whole conversation. If, if Peter was preaching this sermon, it would be interesting to say, where's he going to take all this? What's the, what's the punch at the end? What's the call to action? What's the application? Where Peter takes this whole conversation is what impact this conversation has on all the people not in this room who don't know the Lord, who are dead in their ways, who are alienated from God, who are caterpillars, unable to do what they were made to do, yet, hopefully. Peter says this at the end. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. This is the, this is the big payoff. He says, I urge you, I urge you. 
as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think what Peter's talking about there about glorifying God on the day of visitation is when Jesus comes back, there will be more Christians. Because the people that God has strategically placed around you, which any people you know are people he strategically put around you. The people he strategically put around you, he is going to be lifting their chins and turning their eyes to watch you. And some of you might be what draws people to take God more seriously. Some of you might be the thing that provokes curiosity in your friends who have no interest in Jesus right now. Holiness is not just a conversation about us and God, and it's not just a conversation about you and your spiritual life. Holiness is public. Because holiness has everything to do with how you love the world and whether you help the world or hurt the world. And I have spent too much of my life probably doing what y'all spend your lives doing too, which is desperately trying to blend in and not draw attention to myself for standing out. And that is fatal to the world. We have hearts that want to blend in and not stick our head up and cause a ruckus or attract any attention or be thought of as narrow-minded or small-minded or old-fashioned. And that's exactly the thing the world needs. The world needs your holiness. And God knows it. And that's why he says these things to us. Um, There's a way to think about this. I don't know what people listen to anymore. In my day, it was the radio. Is it Spotify? Is it what? Pandora? When you're kind of like shuffling through the stations, if that's even a thing anymore, what usually gets you to stop turning the dial and stop on a song? It's the music. It's not the lyrics. You don't have time to hear the lyrics, right? You're just hitting that seek button, and you get it about two or three seconds before you hit it again. It's the music that makes you stop, that draws you in, that makes you pay attention. It might be that day, it might be a couple of weeks later, it might be months later, and you're like, that song is caught in your head, and you begin to learn the words so you can sing it. You might even memorize all the words. The music drew you in to listen to the lyrics. Peter, I think, is saying something similar here. No one is ever saved apart from the content of the gospel. The word of God is essential for someone to come to Jesus. But how does God woo and draw people? to sit and listen to the lyrics of the gospel. He does it through his people, through his church, remembering who they are in this place of exile and in this world. And so your holiness and your good deeds and my good deeds as the Spirit enables us to grow in that is the music of the gospel to a watching world that Peter presumes will be affected by it to some extent or another. I want to close with this story. Do you remember it was like three years ago there was a huge Ebola outbreak in Africa? You remember seeing uh, the caretakers of those people who were like bleeding out of their eyes and their ears and their noses and vomiting and diarrhea and and died a a horrible death? You remember what they looked like? These people were in like Tyvek suits. They had three layers of rubber gloves on with duct tape. They had rubber boots on. They had uh, respirators. They had goggles, face masks. They had aprons on. And they took a chemical bath when they left the contaminated area to go back. Why? In that scenario, if you didn't know the context of that, you look at that person, you'd be tempted to laugh at him. What an idiot. Look at this guy. He's got to be hot in that suit, loser. 
But if you knew the context, you know that that man is wearing that suit because he loves these people. And he knows if I blend in with them, I die and they die. They depend on me being different and distinct. They, the dirty, the sick, depend on my cleanness. Friends, the reason Jesus was able to save you, and I think I could even say the reason Jesus was willing to save you, is because he was holy. He was so different than us, so distinct, and he paid a high, high cost for that. But he was different, and he remained different. He didn't assimilate to the world to save some face. And you and I are in this room today because of it. Or if you're not drawn to him, you could be with him tonight because he is holy. And if you're united to him, you're holy too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would make this holiness you have called us to and holiness you have made us, make it beautiful. Make it desirable. Make us want to fly to it like moths to a light. Do this in us, Holy Spirit. You are the Holy Spirit. You love the things we've been talking about tonight. You taught them to us. You want them for us. So now we ask for your help in making it all come true in us. For our sakes, for your sakes, and for the sake of the world. Amen.